Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Abby Lamert, a third-year student at Yale Law School. We'll be discussing your article, Facebook's Corporate Law Paradox, which was recently published in the Virginia Law and Business Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Abby, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to be on. You've written a really deeply researched and considered law review article about a single company, Facebook, or as they call themselves these days, Meta. Probably can't be said by most businesses, even most really big businesses, that scholars are devoting this kind of attention to them. So I'd like to open our conversation with maybe a question about what makes Facebook a different kind of company and a different kind of business compared to something like a big food processing company or a brake manufacturer or even a major book publisher. I like to pick of examples because we know that Facebook likes to move fast and break things. So in that sense, they're definitely not the same as a brake manufacturer. But you're right that they are quite distinct from most companies for a lot of reasons. One, they are probably the world's largest speech distribution platform. What makes them unique is that they're market dominant. That market dominance is propelled by network effects and that they have in their non-economic, non-business capacity, a role as a driver of public opinion, current events, and the news cycle. But for the argument that I make in my recent article, I want to highlight two different aspects that make Facebook what I think is a singularly powerful and destructive business. The first and a really fascinating aspect of this is that unlike in most businesses, many of Facebook's users are unaware of or uncertain on the details of the transaction that they're engaging in when they engage with the company. Even if it is now common knowledge, Facebook collects your personal information. I think that the details or the actual way in which the company monetizes your data is still unfamiliar to most folks who use Facebook. I think many would assume that the company straight up sells your data. But in fact, we know that Facebook's revenue comes not from selling data directly, but by selling opportunities to place advertisements. So when you're scrolling on Facebook and an ad appears, an advertiser like Nike or McDonald's has bid in real time for the opportunity to display that advertisement to you, knowing that you are, let's say, a 20-something female with a predilection for online shopping or with an interest in competitive sports. And so the winning advertiser gets to load their ad in front of your eyes. But I think what's unique about Facebook is that the company has been incredibly successful in camouflaging this transaction and in capturing and manipulating the user's beliefs about what it is that they're doing when they engage with the company's platforms. So what you think you're doing when you log into Facebook and use it is that you are joining groups, planning events, communicating with your loved ones who are far away. And on one level, that's true. But from Facebook's perspective, your only economically relevant activity and the only thing that they're going to talk to their shareholders about is how many ads you viewed. We're all familiar with the idea of caveat emptor and buyer beware, but users are less likely to be on their guards to Facebook's manipulations if we lack awareness that we're engaged in a transaction in the first place. I think one of the issues of the unique aspects of Facebook's business model is that it opens its users up to increased risk of manipulation as they engage in this transaction. The second and unique aspect of Facebook compounds this user vulnerability to manipulation. 
Facebook, as we've begun to realize as a society, is an addictive product. And as Fiona Scott Morton and some other economic scholars have written about and pointed out, markets for addictive products work very differently than normal markets. They break many of the assumptions of our neoclassical economic models. In those classical models, we take it as a given that consumers are rational, that their preferences are fixed, inherent, and unchanging. But when a product is addictive, all of those assumptions break down. We'll tend to massively overconsume the product that's addictive, even after it stops making us happy, even when it starts to make us unhappier, and even when, tragically, the product is actively contributing to our own mental or physical harm. But from Facebook's perspective, more user time on the platform equals more profit. To summarize what I think are the two distinct markers of Facebook's unique harmfulness. The first is the obscurity of the basic nature of that transaction that's going on between Facebook and its users. And the second is the addictive nature of Facebook's product. These unique markers have perhaps contributed to a lot of controversy around Facebook, particularly over the last handful of years. Could you tell us about the controversy around Facebook around its use of data, around its dissemination of information in American society and other societies? What have been some of the allegations that have been made against it in recent years? And how should we be thinking about those allegations? Has it committed some criminal violation? Has it broken the law? Or should we be thinking about those allegations in a different light? I think we all remember the first time that Mark Zuckerberg put on a suit and got dragged in front of Congress a few years ago now, but the company has obviously encountered a massive number of both public relations and also congressional inquiries in the last few years. Let's take the whole suite of them that are related to the company's antitrust or competition effects and take those and leave those aside. But the allegations and the public outrage against Facebook that have been the most interesting and also the most confusing to me over the last few years have been, as you mentioned, the allegations that Facebook has consistently and routinely put profits ahead of people. Those accusations really came to a head a couple of falls ago when Francis Hogan released the Facebook files back in September of 2021. And the headlines that followed the release of the Facebook files included dozens and dozens of stories about the social harms wrought by the company's products. One that we all remember is that Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teen girls, and that talks about the impact on disordered eating that Facebook was able to correlate to its products among a subset of teen girls. There was another headline that read, Facebook did little to moderate posts in the world's most violent countries. And we've talked about the international democratic effects of the platforms. Facebook has known it had a human trafficking problem for years, and it still hasn't fully fixed it. All of these headlines that came out around the Facebook files absolutely lambasted the company rightly for all of the social harms that were flowing from its platforms and the widespread global use of its platforms and its content moderation failures. Commentators around the time of the Facebook files called it the company's largest PR crisis since the Cambridge Analytica data privacy scandal that had happened in 2018. I think that Frances Hogan very brilliantly in her 60 Minutes interview summed up the public outrage in a line where she said, what I saw at Facebook over and over again were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. To sum up the public criticism, it is that. It is the pursuit of profits over the public good, even knowingly and even intentionally, that really came to a head with the release of the Facebook files. But what confused me about that and what will probably also 
confuse your listeners who are familiar with corporate law is that while those accusations are certainly ethical problems, they might not be legal problems because prioritizing profits is more or less what a public corporation that's incorporated in Delaware, like Facebook, has to do. Delaware adheres quite firmly and strictly to the shareholder primacy doctrine. Corporate directors' fiduciary duties obligate them to maximize profits for their shareholders. And to the extent that Facebook's corporate directors, or let's say in this case, Mark Zuckerberg, who is chairman of the board and also the CEO, to the extent that Mark Zuckerberg admits that he's prioritizing any other interests, even things like democracy or ethics, he could be successfully sued for violating his duty to shareholders. So the paradox to me of the public outrage around the Facebook files was that they didn't reveal any sort of corporate wrongdoing in a traditional sense. A write-up in the New York Times a few weeks after the initial release of the files summed it up really well. The argument that Facebook prioritized profits isn't convincing because that's what companies do, and it's hard to see a clear case. Facebook and prioritizing profits over people seems to be doing exactly what corporate law demands. In some ways, the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and the other directors of Facebook are tied. Corporate law ties their hands. Do we have maybe a sense of what Facebook's leadership might want, whether it's a question about maximizing profits or taking other considerations into account. Could you talk about how their hands are tied and what critics might be asking them to do or to take into account that they might be unable to do and why they're unable to do those things? Could you maybe reconcile or contrast those two items between the demands that society might be placing upon them and the countervailing demands and perhaps more compelling demands from their advantage that Delaware corporate law is imposing upon them. Let's start first with what Delaware corporate law imposes on Facebook. I'm sure your listeners know probably more than me about the nuances of director fiduciary duties, Delaware corporate law, but Delaware has been very firmly and openly committed to the shareholder primacy standard. According to one scholar's take on the leading case, which is eBay versus Newmark in 2010 from, from the state of Delaware, that case makes it clear that if a fiduciary of a Delaware corporation admits that he's treating an interest other than stockholder wealth as an end in itself, rather than as an instrument to stockholder wealth, he is committing a breach of fiduciary duty. Delaware does not countenance, this is another quote from the same article, Delaware does not countenance directors secretly serving non-shareholders at the expense of shareholders. What this means in Facebook's case is that the duty to maximize profit for shareholders translates roughly into a duty to maximize a metric called user engagement. Because Facebook operates on a fully ad-based business model, we can leave aside for a second their pivot to the metaverse, which I'm happy to talk about later. Because Facebook operates on a fully ad-based business model, its profitability correlates very strongly to the total amount of time and attention that users are spending on its platforms, a metric that the company has labeled user engagement. And Facebook routinely will tell its shareholders in its public filings that its financial performance has been and will continue to be significantly determined by its success in adding, retaining, and engaging active users. So in general, then, Facebook's corporate directors should be expected to make decisions that are maximizing user engagement, the time and attention that users spend on the platform, both in the short and in the long terms. Consequently, any director decisions which would lead to a foreseeable and meaningful drop in the amount of user engagement on the platform in the short term would need to be justified as necessary to ultimately increase the amount of 
of user engagement or otherwise ensure profitability in the long term. The difficulty and where we begin to get into the tension of what society expects of Facebook versus what corporate law demands of Facebook is that this general mandate to maximize user engagement does not equate to a mandate to design a digital platform or invest in content moderation in ways that are optimal for society. The reason is very simple and very deeply rooted in human nature, but the types of content that drive the most user engagement with the platform, so the types of content that cause people to spend the most time on Facebook are not the types of content that are beneficial for society or for a healthy democracy. As Mark Zuckerberg himself said in a blog post in early 2018, One of the biggest issues that social networks face is that when left unchecked, people will engage disproportionately with more sensationalist and provocative content. Another quote from the same blog post, Facebook's own research suggests that no matter where the company draws the lines for what content it allows and what content it blocks or screens out or removes, as a piece of content gets closer to the line, people will engage with it more on average, even when they tell Facebook afterwards that they don't subjectively like the content. So this leads to ultimately the paradox that my entire article explores, which is that while users may not consciously enjoy borderline harmful content on social media platforms, Facebook's own research has showed that they spend more time viewing and engaging with it. Facebook's business model, driven by Delaware corporate law, requires maximizing user engagement, not user enjoyment. I might pivot here to what are some of the proposed solutions to the social harms? What are tech accountability advocates pushing the company to do? And are those feasible in light of this paradox between what corporate law demands and what is good for society? My ultimate takeaway in my paper is that most of the leading and prominent calls for reform of content moderation on platforms like Facebook are actually really difficult for the company to undertake lawfully under the strictures of Delaware corporate law. Some of these leading calls for accountability include hiring much larger orders of magnitude more human content moderators. This might have changed since I last looked it up, but Facebook has between 30,000 and 40,000 human content moderators that it employs largely through contractors around the world. One call for reform has been to drastically increase this number so that the error rate of content moderation goes down and we aren't relying on error-prone algorithms to do this screening for us. That's one reform. But obviously, those human costs are very expensive and would drive up costs in the long run. Another proposed reform has been creating institutional separation between the company's business teams, which are responsible for continued growth and revenue, and the company's trust and safety teams, which are responsible for thinking about these social consequences and harms and content moderation policy on the platforms. But as we can talk about, and as I think is best exemplified by the Facebook Oversight Board, such institutional separation is also barred under Delaware corporate law. You are not allowed to delegate important decisions that impact profitability to outsiders. So the third is reducing the addictiveness of the platform, particularly for younger users. And the fourth is related, which is cutting back on sensationalist content, so making content moderation guidelines stricter about what kinds of harmful content can remain up on these platforms. But as we explored a second ago, people engage disproportionately with that kind of content. I think that in the long run, it would be almost impossible, absent some deep change in either human predilection for overconsuming this content, for companies to justify it as profitable, to reduce the amount of sensationalist content or the addictiveness of their platforms, because ultimately that's just reducing user engagement, both in the long and in the short run, and is nearly impossible for the platforms to justify under their existing business models under Delaware corporate law.
What would you say to those who respond that it is possible perhaps to reconcile this urge, this demand toward profit maximization and some pro-social approaches? For example, we need to reduce the addictiveness of our platform or we need to bear the cost of increased content moderation through manual content moderation and employing more people. Because if we don't, then we might bear heightened external regulation on our business from a public policy perspective, either in the U.S. or elsewhere. Is there any way to perhaps reconcile these two competing demands that are being pushed on Facebook? I'd obviously really like, if that were the case, I want Facebook to be regulated more effectively. And if there were more effective, what I call in my article, Peguvian mechanisms, mechanisms that can take social harms and costs that the company currently creates and experiences as negative externalities and reimpose some of those costs on the company, then certainly the company could take actions that we see as socially responsible. If, for example, the company genuinely feared that the government is about to step in with costly external regulation, that gives it a proper justification under Delaware corporate law where it could say, we're facing the threat of external regulation. We better get our act together and we better invest, even make expensive investments and costly investments in content moderation. And we need to hire thousands of more moderators because we are facing an even costlier external threat of government regulation. If that was the case, then totally the platform would be able to align what is socially beneficial with what is best for its shareholders. And it could take those kind of self-regulatory actions. But what I point out in my paper is, unfortunately, the two main Peguvian mechanisms that we would turn to align social welfare with the company's bottom line, neither of them are functioning very effectively. The first would be user exit. As in general, if a company is doing something that is bad for society or bad for individual consumers, they'll avoid consuming that product. But like we talked about earlier, Facebook's product is just weird for several reasons. Consumers lack awareness of the nature of the transaction that they're engaging with in Facebook, and Facebook is addictive. So user exit has not, when you look historically back at the company's history, we don't see any meaningful user exit in response to these public relations crises that Facebook has been continually faced with. Actually, you see in the wake of the Facebook files, there was no meaningful drop in Facebook user rates. Similarly, the threat of government regulation over the last few years, although I have lost count of the number of times that Zuckerberg or his peers and other platforms have been dragged in front of Congress, we haven't taken meaningful steps in the United States towards digital platform regulation on any comprehensive level. Europe is far out in advance of us on this with their recent Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. At least in the United States, the threat of government regulation that could justify taking some of these both short and long-term costly reform measures is just not really very present. What would you like to see happen or what would you propose? And to the extent that you have some solutions to offer to this problem that Facebook presents, do those solutions require any interventions from Congress or the Delaware General Assembly or the European Commission? Or are there any options that Facebook might have available to it as a matter of private ordering today? I don't mean to paint a totally bleak picture. I think it's important to reckon with In the words of Chief Justice Leo Stryan of the Delaware Supreme Court, in a quote which I liked so much that I used it to open my paper, I think that 
lecturing others to do the right thing without acknowledging the actual rules that apply to their behavior and the actual power dynamics to which they are subject is not a responsible path to social progress. That's not to say that I don't want regulation. I deeply want regulation, but I think that we will make more effective progress towards regulation when we are acknowledging the power dynamics that Facebook is subject to under Delaware corporate law. Having tried and over the course of my paper to take Delaware corporate law and its impact on Facebook into account, I then make a few suggestions at the end, both for how we might change corporate law itself or failing that, how we might use externality regulation to make Facebook internalize under existing corporate law structures the costs of its platforms and its products. I am more excited about and think it's a little more feasible to talk about this externality regulation. There are three different suggestions that I put forth. The first is that I think that there is great promise in the antitrust and the competition lawsuits and proposed legislation that would regulate Facebook's behavior. Obviously, the antitrust enforcement actions and digital competition legislation that's being advanced in the UK and the EU and on a more nascent level in the United States would lower barriers to entry for new social media platforms. So would mandating interoperability between various platforms, forcing the platforms to compete more effectively on quality with a wider assortment of new entrants is likely to introduce healthier alternative apps and platforms into the market. If a platform could tout itself as we are the non-addictive alternative to Facebook or we are the less addictive alternative to Facebook, I think that is making an improvement in these social harms that would then force Facebook to compete alongside it on quality. Another development that I've been keeping my eye on is what the Supreme Court is going to do with Section 230 in the upcoming case Gonzalez versus Google, which will be argued on February 21st. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act grants immunity from civil liability to digital platforms for a vast assortment of their content moderation activities. Right now, it functions as a shield that insulates Facebook and other digital platforms from what I think are many of the ordinary risks and costs of civil liability that most commercial retailers face. In essence, Section 230 right now is functioning as a government subsidy for the platform's creation of these social harms. It functions, in essence, as an artificial congressionally created dam that holds back a flood of tort litigation that is being led by those most particularly injured by the platform's creation of social harms and could, if allowed to proceed, be one of these classic Pigouvian mechanisms reimposing the cost of the company's social harms on the company. Litigation is already ongoing against the digital platforms under many creative legal theories, often in state courts. And a lot of these suits are seeking very large damage awards that would cut significantly into Facebook and other platforms' profit margins. But in most of the cases that are being put forth for platform-related harms, digital platforms have been able to successfully raise Section 230 as a defense. I think this is just one of the reasons why Gonzalez versus Google will be a very important case. The privacy and human rights risks raised by proposed Section 230 reforms need to be taken seriously. But I think that the prospect of expensive and time-consuming litigation might push Facebook and other digital platforms towards investing more on the front end before those harms occur in more socially optimal levels of content moderation and would drive some fundamental changes to their underlying ad-based business models. My last and most off-the-wall idea 
for using externality regulation is taxing Facebook for something that I call the social costs of connection. There is a well-known precedent for a government mandate to force industry to adopt a more expensive metric that prices in negative externalities generated by that industry's production processes, and that's the social cost of carbon. The social cost of carbon in environmental regulation is the cost of the damages that are created by one extra ton of carbon dioxide emissions. Just as it took, I think, decades for scientists and economists to identify, quantify, and persuade the public about the costs of negative externalities of carbon emissions. Similarly, digital platforms profited from this early golden age in the early 2000s and the 2010s, where increased connection of individuals in society and across societies and cultures was perceived to be an unadulterated social good. But two decades on from the launch of Facebook, it's started to become apparent not just to scientists, but also to regulators and all of us in the public that while increased increased connection does in fact provide meaningful social utility, its byproducts also include massive social harms. And I think Facebook's corporate law paradox is thus analogous to the incentive structure that faces major corporate greenhouse gas emitters, which profit from their carbon emissions and experience their environmental harms as negative externalities. One plausible approach for resolving Facebook's corporate law paradox is introducing a metric that more adequately captures the true social costs of connection. And calculating a value for that would be very difficult, I will admit. It would require scholars and economists to identify the various pathways through which social media use leads to damages to our economy and to human welfare that are not currently captured in Facebook's market price. Those pathways would include the value of lost time due to Facebook's addictive design features, the costs of mental and physical health harm from exposure to damaging content on the platform, or the loss of future earnings due to decreased academic performance of young social media users. Other pathways could also include the healthcare costs of vaccine misinformation. We can go on and on the costs of terror attacks and mass shootings by those radicalized on Facebook, the costs of regulatory and legislative stagnation driven by the polarization exacerbated by Facebook. But ultimately, a connection price would force platforms like Facebook to reevaluate their long-term investment decisions, changing their underlying ad-based business models and investing in content moderation in levels that are more socially optimal. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the article? On a very personal, individual level of what can I do today based on this information, I hope to just provide a fresh reminder to people that Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are not there primarily to connect you to your friends. They're there to show you advertisements. I think that these companies have so deeply captured our public conversation about them, the regulatory debates that are ongoing about them, that you can see it in the very terminology that we use to describe them. We call these platforms social media platforms, and we debate about whether they're more like platforms and should be regulated like platforms or whether they're more like publishers and should be regulated like publishers. But the reality of what these platforms is on an economic level is that they are digital advertising companies. And I think we ought to conceive of them as such. And we ought to foreground when we use them that we are actively engaging in a transaction with them where we are exchanging our very precious and our very valuable time and attention for access to the platform. And 
the mechanism of this transfer is showing us advertisements. I just think it's important to foreground the true nature of these companies that's so often obscured and that we can carry that awareness into our opinions about these platforms and into the regulatory conversations that we take part in. I really like on this subject Ezra Klein's recent op-ed in the New York Times about Twitter, which sounded a bell of awareness that perhaps we have been over-consuming these for the last decade and a half, and it's time to start to reckon with them in a way similar to that which society started to reckon with the health effects of cigarettes once we identified the connection between cigarettes and cancer. I think that we are on a very similar footing with regards to the health effects of social media platforms. The literature is just beginning to emerge about the long-term health effects of these platforms. And I think we're going to see, a, I think, a very similar societal reckoning with the mental health harms over the last, over the next few years. So on that note, I'd advise everyone to keep their eye on Gonzalez versus Google and consider that with these economic implications in mind. And I think on a last and personal note, I would like to thank the people who have helped me develop this critical perspective on technology companies. We're grateful to the scholars who write in this vein, Kate Klonick, Evelyn Dueck, Danielle Citrone, and lots of others. And grateful to everyone who had a hand in contributing to this paper because there were many. Our guest today has been Abby Lemert, a third-year student at Yale Law School. We've discussed her article, Facebook's Corporate Law Paradox, which was recently published in the Virginia Law and Business Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Abby, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. It was great to be on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.